This is Dan Wharton Uncancelled. Let's go. For too long, the woke madness infiltrating our political, legal, education and health systems has been dismissed as, you know, just another aspect of the so-called culture war, rather than being taken as a serious threat to what it means to be British. But a series of eye-opening events culminating last week in the closure of the dangerous Tavistock Gender Identity Clinic for Children has proven that there must be a serious fight back taken by this government. Well, thank goodness for our brave Attorney-General, Suella Braverman. While most of her Cabinet colleagues have gone on holiday as the Tory leadership battle rages on, the woman tipped to be the next Home Secretary has today launched a fully-fledged attack against who she describes as, quote, the witch hunters of the Middle Ages. Among those targeted, the brilliant campaigners Maya Forstater and Alison Bailey, who both won legal challenges after being discriminated against for stating... Realities, really, absolute realities. Truths in the increasingly toxic trans debate. As Braverman wrote in today's Daily Mail, how did we get to the place where stating the facts of biology can get you sacked? She also launched a long overdue crackdown on the zealotry of the diversity industry, which has become a new religion, really. And her department, highly divisive equality training, which I'm convinced actually stokes racial issues in a largely non-racist country, well, it's been scrapped altogether after she found out staff had wasted 1,900 hours on the course in the last year alone, where staff spouted far-left nonsense like, not being racist isn't enough. We must be anti-racist. One slide used in the presentation said that if a black person tells you a phrase is offensive to them, then it is, uh, regardless of the facts. This is what the slide actually said. Let me show you. It is not up to you as a white person to tell them that it's not. Instead, educate yourself as to why the phrase is offensive and stop using it. Braverman fumed, this does nothing to create solidarity and support, but rather keeps emphasising difference, creating a sense of other and pitting different groups against each other. Britain needs a lot of things, but it certainly doesn't need woke commissars policing our thoughts. And this morning on GB News, Suella explained why this is personal to her. It was all premised on a misassumption, in my view, that uh, the uh, ethnic minorities, myself uh, as an Asian woman, uh, must necessarily be a victim of white privilege, must necessarily be a victim of white fragility. I mean, these ideas are anathema to meritocracy, to British values, to co creating a cohesive society. Uh, and I was really disappointed that uh, a lot of time and resource uh, is being spent on this within my department, within the civil service, but also within the corporate and private sector as well. The balance of this country in officialdom, at least, is all wrong at the moment. If you call the police to assist you after a burglary or a mugging, the chances are you're going to get short shrift. But look at how many officers came to arrest the army veteran Darren Brady, who was alleged to have retweeted a picture of a swastika that was made from pride flags uh, to make a satirical point on social media. No. 
The Hampshire police would realise how ridiculous this is. It is ridiculous. It is. Of course, I'm What did it need to come to? Tell us why you it to this level. Because I don't understand. I posted something that he posted. You come to arrest me, you don't arrest him. Why has it come to this? Why am I in cuffs? Because of something he shared, then I shared. Because someone has been caused, obviously, anxiety based upon your social media post. I can't believe it. I mean, we might not have police to assist in violent crimes committed against you, but don't worry. Orwellian-style thought police now patrol Britain's streets. How did we get here? Especially under a Conservative government. The balance must shift in a future Liz Truss administration, ably supported by true anti-woke campaigners like Braverman, rather than the Tory wets, you know, you know who I mean, Hancock, Javid, yes, Sunak too, who succeeded in ruining much of Boris Johnson's programme. Here was Truss at the Conservative Party conference before the leadership campaign. We reject the zero-sum gain of identity politics. We reject the illiberalism of cancel culture and we reject the soft bigotry of low expectations that has held so many in our country back. But scrapping diversity roles and unconscious bias training must be just the start in the process of Westminster reclaiming its soul. The US under Joe Biden provides the ultimate warning as to what happens when woke warriors gain control. We must avoid the same fate. To respond now, my superstar panel, political commentator Dominique Samuels, the former Tory London mayoral candidate and Conservative politician Sean Bailey, and political editor at the Sunday Mirror, Nigel Nelson. Dominique Samuels, do you agree with Braverman? Completely. I think that diversity and inclusion training isn't really about equality, it's about entrenching division. And anyone who rails against this sort of woke orthodoxy that's become entrenched, entrenched within our institutions is automatically painted as either a, a, a bigot, a racist, a transphobe. And it's just not true. In fact, I think it's patronising, and this was seen recently, um, where a diversity officer was found guilty of racial discrimination by assuming that one of her colleagues must have been um, a victim mm -hmm. of discrimination. And, and she wasn't happy with that, quite simply rightly. Simply because of her skin colour, and, and she won. And that says that, no, we don't want this, we don't want to be patronised, because all it does is actually make race relations worse, because... You know, you see race in scenarios where it wouldn't have necessarily existed before. But, of mm. course, this is what these people want. They want division. They want conflict. Well, Sean, you know, I was brought up under the John Lennon philosophy of we live in a colourblind world and the Martin Luther King Jr. philosophy too, and that's always what I've supported. But according to this training that Braverman has exposed in her department, if you were to tell me not to use a particular word, whatever word it happened to be, I would not be able to have an intellectual debate with you. According to this training, because you're black, I just have to accept that what you're telling me is correct and go away and learn why you're correct. And to me, 
that's not how society should operate. We should be able to have debates about why you don't want me to use a particular word. Well, firstly, Dan, anything I tell you is correct. But all seriousness, look, I, I want to take a slight sidestep. Okay. Why what Breverman has done today is so important, because these woke warriors were beginning to use our legal system and certainly mm -hmm. the government against us. Yep. This is Orwellian in a way that I don't think this country has ever seen. And if you can train the civil service to spend its time looking for people, and then to help, um, you know, write them out of history, that is a very powerful thing. And an example of that, she talked about 1,900 hours spent mm. on training. But remember, only a few weeks ago now, on this very show, we talked about a union jackass who had been given over £3 million in government money and then had decided to use some of that money to say white men hand the power back. Yeah. I was born and raised in this country. I, I was born where we're sat. I was born in Paddington. And the interesting thing for me is, this is the greatest level of racism I've ever felt, because now people are being told everything they've done is racist, so some people decide, well, I, well, I am, and they're behaving out of that. Mm. And I say these words advisedly. Please do not let white, middle-class guilt decide how you treat black people. Mm -hmm. Our parents made the trip to this country to be equals, not to be pets. Mm -hmm. And this whole thing is for another set of people to A, raise lots of money. Stonewall and all those trainers have made a huge amount of money from this. That's why people are using the word industry. And secondly, give me the, the, the benefit of the doubt. Give me the respect that I may actually be able to provide some benefit to your life, to the country's mm. life. Not this idea that I'm always automatically a victim. We have had tons of racism in this country, but this is making it worse. Mm. Nigel Nelson, are you one of those middle-class white blokes with guilt? I'm not sure it's guilt, but that um, I do think that, uh, that um, diversity and inclusion is really important. Um, and so uh, I do understand what Suella Bra Braverman is saying. If you think that the, you need to rebalance the priorities, in other words, 1,000 hours rather than 2,000 or something like that, I can understand that. But the whole point of having these kind of training sessions is to deal with the kind of uh, conscious or unconscious bias that all of us can be guilty of. It's not about necessarily about race. race. I'm not guilty of unconscious bias. Well, how do you know? Mm. I'm not. How do you know? But because I know I'm not racist, I know I'm not transphobic, I know I'm not homophobic, I know I'm not But sexist. how can you be certain of that? The whole the, Because the... I'm certain of that. All right, OK, all right, allowing that, the day that, that uh, I'm not certain, by the way... So you, uh, so you think you have some unconscious bias that you, that you actually might secretly be sexist, racist and homophobic, do you? Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what my unconscious bias might be because I'm unconscious of it. And the point about... Yeah, but you trying... know who you are. I, I know who and I you am. Know, presumably and I, and I hope, I'm, I'm, I'm hope I, I watch out for it. The point basically is for the training is to make sure that you don't go for it, uh, to interview somebody for a job, for a promotion, for a place at university, and then go and choose somebody who's exactly like them. But surely th that sort of training actually encourages people to be more discriminatory because they have these ideas about race, about stereotypes, about 
possibly being a racist, sexist, homophobe, mm. and that then makes them treat people differently. And, and this mm. is I mean, Dominique, you wouldn't want to be hired for a job because no. of your skin colour. No, I, I wouldn't. And I wouldn't want to be in a job and be spoken to yeah. and treated like yeah. a fragile And child. I wouldn't want but, to be here, hired for a job because of my sexuality. It's it, irrelevant. I, I agree with you. But here's, that's, here's, that's here's, here's right. the most important yeah. thing. Here's the most important thing. If you're in a position because you fit a quota, you will never be respected. Yeah. And Nigel's point would make sense if the training wasn't so busy punishing well, people. Because, Nigel, can I, can I just go back to, to that specific uh, training uh, document that Braverman pulled out? Uh, so this is what they're told in a presentation. Uh, it's not up to you as a white person to tell a black person whether a phrase is offensive or not. Instead, educate yourself as to why the phrase is offensive and stop using it. There's no grey area there. That, that is, for want of a better phrase, that is black or white. It's saying you are wrong, no matter what the facts and say, I'm you are wrong because, because you're black. white. Do you accept that? Yeah. Um, but what I'd like to do, if, if I knew what the phrase was, say that whether it was Dominique or Sean telling me that there was a phrase you objected to and we could talk about it like grown-ups... No, no, that's not what the I know what that says. This is official government training. I know, I know what that says. And I don't know if it's been taken out of context. Context. What I'm saying How is, how that be taken out of context? Well, because we, we, were you at the training class? I certainly wasn't. But these are. These I'd are, like to have been. This is the actual slide way. that's showing up is, on the screen. And this is a, very similar to a lot of um, diversity training that goes on within the private and corporate sector. I participated um, in a documentary called Black and British for the BBC, and part of that was actually people from the show going and doing diversity training. And this exact stuff actually happened. And this one woman um, who sued, actually, she experienced really bad racism within a government. Department. They had diversity and inclusion training in that department where she received intense racism. I asked her, do you think diversity and inclusion training, unconscious bias training, makes any difference? She said verbatim, she feels like it actually makes things worse. Mm. And that's someone who sued a government department mm. for racism mm. that she experienced. Well, what we're being asked to do is see you... race in everything, aren't we? Exactly. And that's I'll tell you why it makes it worse, do. because if you're a white person, you then become worried and nervous around black people. Mm. So what do you do? You remove black totally. people from your life. Totally. And that includes... Because I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah. Exactly. I, I don't want to be seen as being racist. No, but, but the, but the if training... You, if you end up doing that... Well, no, that yes, would be a I, conscious bias. I'm suggesting, I'm suggesting the training elevates the chances of that happening. You're talking about a man. I've been... I've, I've remembered a Tory party. I've done lots of stuff with the army. Very white bastions. And they, and they bend and they try to, 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 to include you. But if they're terrified, why would they? Mm. And, and and the real reason this drives me round the bend, it doesn't help black people. No. If someone wrote this and actually wanted to help, they've got it wrong. No. And what it really is about... But is we're about you're, you're, you're right what you here. said. This is to assuage white middle-class guilt. Mm. And actually what it does, and I am convinced of this, and Dominique's point to me mm. proves, proves it, it increases. Yeah. But, but you're harping. Final word. Though. You're harping completely on race. Um, we've had recent. Well, no, I just mentioned. Se I'd I'm had, not. I mentioned sexuality. Had, I mentioned um, sexism white too. I'm working not class young people who disproportionately don't go to university, whereas, for instance... Uh, uh, I bang on about this on this show all the time. Kids of a Chinese background do. And the whole thing, there, there could be an unconscious bias going on. So this kind yeah, of diversity... But that's not what this is about. That is not what that is about, but it's not just about race or about um, homophobia. It is actually about whether people are 
getting positions simply because they, they are like the person that um, who's given that but Again, position. Nigel, it would be great if it was, but it isn't. It only talks about race. It only talks yeah. about sexuality. It doesn't talk yeah. about class. And what it, it does, about, and what it immediately well. does, is it divides in a government department black people on one side of the yep. room, you have to behave in one certain way, white people, you have to behave in another way. To me, that goes against everything I believe. Everything it's the deeper I thing, we're spending government money placing this in the system. The civil service is now becoming the fault police, but what it should be doing is doing Our positive professor, Carol Sikora, coming up, but it's time now for The Clash. Emmanuel Macron's government hasn't done a lot to be envious of in recent years, but there's mounting pressure to follow our neighbours across the channel by scrapping the BBC licence fee. The French recently said au revoir to their own £115 deli tax to help citizens with the spiralling cost of living crisis. It fronted France's public broadcasters with the majority of their income since being first introduced in 1933. Meanwhile, here last year, the £159 licence fee earned the BBC an eye-watering £3.8 billion from 27 million households. But long gone are the days of impartial, fair and balanced broadcasting from the BBC. The corporation has been descending on a woke-induced death spiral for years, not least by paying Gary Lineker £1.3 a year to chat about the football and splurging £270,000 on a diversity director. Here's a reminder of how the BBC has been splashing your licence fee cash. I suppose, looking at the crowd, it is a very white crowd, mostly. When we say we want to kill Whitey, we don't really mean we want to kill Whitey, we do. Why bother with a milkshake when you could get some battery acid? Jerry, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. I think your uh, flag is not up to standard size uh, government interview uh, <laughs> measurements. I think it's just a little bit small, but uh, that's your department, really. But all starting 11 players and the five substitutes that came onto the pitch were all white. And that does point towards a lack of diversity in the women's game. So where do you stand on this? Should we follow France and axe the TV licence fee? Dan at GBNews.uk, tweet me at GBNews, vote in our poll. But to help you make your mind up, a trio of opinionated heavyweights, former BBC war correspondent Martin Bell, editor at the Conservative Woman Cathy Ginjal, and former SAS trooper and best-selling author Phil Campion. Cathy Ginjal, I mean, it's not often, right, we say Macron's done a good thing, but... He's done the right thing here and we should follow suit, surely. We definitely should. And Nadine sort of half promised it, but at the wrong time. She did it at the time of Partygate when she wanted to have a bit of a smack at the BBC. The thing is, the Conservatives have been very, very feeble over this. And we've got five dreadful years left of the Charter. Of course, the BBC licence fee is an absolute anachronism going back to the 50s and 60s when there were basically three channels, BBC and ITV. Now, as you know, we all know, there, there are literally hundreds and thousands of channels, but to switch on the TV to watch any of them, you have to pay 159 quid. Um, and the over 79-year-olds too, everybody. 
Uh, I mean, nearly 2 million households don't watch. That's households, not people. The number goes up every year. People are absolutely turned off by its wokeness. It's a left liberal progressive campaigning outfit. I call it the Big Brother Corporation. It gaslights us daily. It's shut down debate on climate change. It says the science is settled. Well, I've never heard anything more ignorant since when was the science on anything settled. It behaved abominably over the EU in the years running up to the referendum. It only got a modicum of impartiality on that issue um, or even decently covering what was happening in the EU, honestly, up until the referendum. On lockdown, it gave one big brother narrative. It's likewise on the vaccine. It's a disgrace over Savile. It's a disgrace over Bashir. It gets away with scandal after scandal. And there is absolutely no justification mm. for having a license fee that you can end up in prison if you don't pay the fine, if you don't you, yeah. um, pay it. For such a corrupt organisation, I mean, look at what's going on with Tim Westwood at, at the moment. Just today, uh, the BBC first forced into a major U-turn on that. I mean, Martin Bell, c can you accept that the BBC that we just played in that compilation of clips is not the same BBC that you worked for. The BBC changes and it evolves. I have risked my life for these people mm. over 12 years in 12 different war zones. And I think they are universally admired, maybe not within the walls of GB News, uh, but they are, they are held to the standard that others hold them to. I'm immensely proud of it now as ever. I know I'm in a minority of one to three, but I think that we have a lot to be proud of and a lot to hold on to, and that's that. Well, certainly no one is taking away the brilliant work that our war correspondents like you have done for the corporation, risking your life. But Phil Campion, obviously you have also risked your life in war zones. Where do you stand on this? Well, it's an interesting point you make there, Martin, because you've risked, you've risked your life but the BBC have also risked lives of colleagues of mine, okay, with their lousy reporting, okay? So we're not, we won't go down the panorama route right now. We're here to talk about the licence, okay? The licence is a sham. Why should I pay it? There's people around me who have to heat or eat, all right? That's their choices in life, heat or eat. They've got no money, all right? Why should they then, with the only privilege or something or, or, or pleasure that they've got left in life, have to pay £159 for something they probably don't watch unless they're over 80 and mute? All right. It's just no, it's, it, it, there's no reason why anybody should have to pay that. The BBC, however good or however bad you deem them to be, should be made to fend for themselves like everybody else does in the inventory and actually start paying their way. OK, and actually having to start and earn their money. And if they did have to earn their money, they might start getting themselves up the ratings a little bit. But for now, for me, there's absolutely no way on earth I'll be putting my hand in my pocket to purchase a license for something I don't watch. There's no, no chance whatsoever. Martin, how do you respond to that? I've just paid my, my licence fee. I think the BBC is a projection of, of, of soft power uh, throughout, the world, throughout the world. It is universally admired. Uh, it does something that nobody else does. It actually gathers the news. ITV News gathers the news. BBC does Sky News. You are just an opinion channel, and you clearly have a, a, a partisan interest in bringing the BBC down. It is a national asset. It should continue to be so. So, so Martin, but you I don't believe... Martin, just, just to pick you up on that, firstly, obviously, 
I will uh, defend GB News. I am an opinion host. I am a, an opinion columnist. I'm a journalist, though. I've broken huge stories, but I hold my hands up. The viewers know what I think. They know where I come from. And we sign up to all the Ofcom rules because, as you'll see in every debate that we have on the show, on every superstar panel, we have a range of views across the political spectrum. But what I would say to you is aren't the BBC completely disingenuous by pretending that their presenters don't have views? We know they have views. We can see it. What about Emily Maitlis's rants against Dominic Cummings and the Conservative government that saw her pulled up on Newsnight, the flagship broadcast? What about a, a reporter like Lewis Goodall, who's in the tank for the left? What about the climate change reporter at the BBC, who is nothing short of an activist? Yes, I have an opinion, but you cannot tell me the BBC correspondents and presenters these days don't have opinions because they are thinly veiled. Dan, if I want to know what's going on inside your head, I will tune into you on GB News, likewise natural fraud. If I want to know what's going on in Ukraine or Taiwan, you've got no news gathering, basically. Therefore, you need mainstream organisations like the BBC, don't you? No, I would completely disagree with that. I do not think we need the BBC, and we do have a news gathering operation here at GB News. Cathy Gingell, do you want to come in? Well, of course, there's more than one news gathering organisation. There's no reason why it shouldn't be self-sufficient. The BBC gets in, what is it, 3.8 billion a year from licence fees. It earns about another 1.3 billion from its veils. It has a very privileged position by being paid for effectively by a tax. If people love it as much and it's as important as Martin says, people will have no trouble paying £159 in subscription without forcing everybody to do it who does doesn't want it. The BBC needs finally to be able to prove that it can operate with on the basis that Martin says it operates on public loyalty and belief that it is a national, special national broadcaster. If he's right, it will survive as a, as a subscription service. And good for it if it will do that, mm. if people yeah. like what it does enough. Absolutely, because I think what the disgrace is, Phil Campion, and, and you pointed it to it a moment ago, and I referred to this in my uh, digest at the top of the show last night, I think it's a great stain on British society. We're meant to be a democratic country, and if you want to watch television at all, if you want to turn on your TV and put on GB News, or if you want to watch Love Island on ITV, or if you want to watch any commercial broadcaster in this country, you are breaking the law by doing that if you haven't paid a poll tax to the BBC. Absolutely. And why should that be? Why should we be held over a barrel, you know, and made to pay that fee? I don't want to watch their stuff. I don't watch their stuff. But if I've got a device in my house which is capable of receiving their stuff and I watch that device, I have to pay them my 159 quid. And that is wrong. And, and the good lady there, she pointed out, if your TV service is so good, if it is so competitive, then people will flock to you and they will pay for it willingly and you won't have a problem. I'll tell you what you want. You want your expenses paid for, you want your big flash pensions and you want all that money just given to you and you don't want to have to go out there and earn it. Mm. And everyone else has to go out there and earn it. It's shocking. It's absolutely I, shocking. I mean, and Martin, do you, do you have a problem, Martin, uh, with the licence fee becoming voluntary? No, I think that uh, the people benefit from it. I think the national broadcaster 
draws huge audiences. It is universally trusted. A few of the opinionated people have just left. I think we are very lucky to have it, and you are lucky to have it because you are judged against it as a so-called news channel. That's what I think. You, you think you think the B, you genuinely believe the BBC is universally respected across the UK? It is imitated all over the world: Canada, Australia, New Zealand. People. I mean, yeah, but I we pay for it. I'm not talking about the elites overseas. I'm talking about the British people that pay for it. Because, Martin, I think what happened after 2016 is that anyone who voted for Brexit, and remember that's half of the people or over half of the people who voted in that uh, referendum, the biggest democratic mandate that this country has ever had, 52% of folk, uh, we all realised that the BBC wasn't representing us. So I think it's since the Brexit referendum in particular that actually it has lost respect from the country, uh, from half the country. So maybe you're right. Remain is still respected, but I don't think that respect is universal anymore, Martin. Uh, my view is that the BBC's coverage of the Brexit referendum was so even-handed they said nothing. They didn't point out the lies that were being told to us. Uh, I think that we've been in a downhill slope ever since, and if I dare say so, the minority channels like yours are part of the problem that we are in, Dan. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're a fan, Martin. <laughs> Keep on watching. Absolutely. Don't miss you. <laughs> Former BBC World Correspondent Martin Fowl, editor at the Conservative Woman, Kathy Ginjal, and former SAS trooper and best-selling author Phil Campion. Thank you all. What a fan he is of, of GB News. Uh, so who do you agree with? Should we follow France and axe the TV licence fee? Sean on Twitter says the licence fee is the biggest daylight robbery ever. We're getting conned by paying wages for woke preacher Gary Lineker. From Ali, why should we pay? The BBC is woke and biased. All public funding should be withdrawn and it should move to a subscription model. And from Charlie, if the BBC is funded via ads and or subscriptions, then yes. If the BBC would be funded via tax, VAT, some type of media levy or any other direct indirect tax, then no. And your verdict, your verdict is now in. 95% of you agree that we should follow France and axe the TV licence fee. 5% of you say we should. Our Tory leading ladies, Emily Carver and Madeleine Grant, coming up. But first, it's time for our positive professor. And despite communist regimes of the world having sent between 60 and 100 million people to an early grave, I'm talking the likes of Stalin and Mao, the World Health Organization's newest hire has no qualms about her commie ideology. After two years terrorising the scared, witless British public with COVID propaganda, Professor Susan Mickey recently joined the World Health Organization as its Behavioural Insights Chief. Behavioural insight is the fancy term for nudge theory, the way governments influence the behaviour of its citizens. Do you remember this classic piece of nudge propaganda during the height of the pandemic? That came courtesy of Mickey and her fellow COVID nudge unit zealots on SAGE, the UK government's hysterical advisory group on public health. And imagine that. A virus so lethal to all of mankind that governments need to hire propaganda units so us thick mere mortals toe the line. Well, despite pretty much all sane corners of Britain moving on from COVID, laughing Mickey couldn't contain her excitement earlier this year when insisting we should wear bacteria-ridden face masks and social distance forever. And the third thing is people's behaviour. Um, that is the behaviour of social distancing, of when you're indoors, making sure there's good ventilation or if it's not wearing face masks, and hand and surface hygiene. 
we'll need to keep these going in the long term. And that will be good not only for COVID, but also to reduce other... So when you say long term... The NHS is sorry to interrupt, Professor Mickey. Do, when you say long term, what do you mean by that? Sure. How long? Very quickly. Um, I think forever. Truly terrifying, chilling. Last year, Mickey, who has been affectionately nicknamed Stalin's nanny, was quizzed by the Unheard website about her Communist Party membership of 40 years. She said it wasn't a problem for her public health work and even had the gall to say that questioning her political affiliations had, quote, no place in a tolerant society. Look. My politics are not anything to do with my scientific advice. And um, I've never discussed my politics. Um, with uh, people like yourself. So, nor am I going to now. The kind of articles you referred to um, are a really disturbing kind of uh, McCarthyite witch hunting, which I don't think should have any place in a liberal, tolerant society. I'll tell you what has no place in a tolerant society, Mickey. Two years of fear, propaganda and downright brainwashing of a nation that was led to believe a virus with the same mortality rate of seasonal flu was worth destroying the entire country for. Susan Mickey was ringleader of that psychological torture. Carol Sakura, uh, Mickey is now peddling her work for the World Health Organization just as it's ramping up monkeypox hysteria across the globe, declaring it a public health emergency. Now, you, you were once... a the cancer chief at the World Health Organization. This was an organization you really believed in. So what on earth has happened, Carol, for them to have now hired communist Mickey, such a terrifying individual, to head its own nudge unit? This is all bonkers, Dan. I mean, yeah. it really is. This lady is going off-piste, even within the WHO. She chairs a committee in the WHO. She doesn't actually work for them. She's a professor at University College. She's not a doctor. She's certainly not an infectious disease specialist. Um, she's a behavioral psychologist. These people change people's behavior. And that was what was tried to be done during the COVID pandemic. To her to come out with a statement to say, from now on, forever, masks and social distancing have got to be there. It's just complete nuts. It's like me saying something about it, too. I know that if you do that, people will die from other things, such as my mm. specialty, cancer. This is just madness. And uh, I think there are lots of people out there. You know, two weeks ago, we had a discussion on this very program about the editor of the British Medical Journal and the Health Yes, yes. Saying, the same sort of stuff. It's a disaster. The NHS is going to collapse because of COVID unless we all mask up and, and do this and that. This is nonsense. It's people looking for PR, basically, publicity. And it, it's just very sad to see. Indeed, but what should we be concerned, Carol, though? Because she actually had huge success during the pandemic in terms of terrifying Brits. I mean, you know how terrified people were, so terrified that they didn't even go to hospital when they had obvious signs of cancer. And we're seeing the trauma now in terms of the massive cancer backlog. And you spoke about it at the time. So should we not be scared? Because the World Health Organization is an organization that has huge power and huge backing from, you know, China, not to mention many of the world's top democracies. Absolutely. But I think 
we would find the WHO just doesn't even know she's spoken like this. I think that that's the problem. She's not representing the WHO in this. She's representing her own beliefs. And that's very dangerous. And lots of people are doing that about COVID. So actually getting a collated view of what we should be doing about it is, is just not there. It, it's like a, a rogue, someone going rogue on the whole thing. And we have to be very careful because you get attention if you do it, as she got and as the BMJ editor got. But, you know, the NHS hasn't collapsed over the last two weeks. We're not infiltrated by COVID. I looked only at four o'clock today at the, the, the last 24 hours data. It's never been better in the UK. We're doing well. And COVID is not part of the problem. The problem, of course, Dan, as you well know, is the NHS is collapsing for totally different reasons. Indeed. Celia Warden and Zuby still to come. First, though, our Tory leading ladies on the latest in the battle to be PM. The new YouGov poll has put Liz Truss a whopping 32 points ahead of rival Fishy Rishi in the battle, and that was before they were quizzed by Kay Burley on Sly News this evening. As you can see, the poll showed 60% support for Truss versus 26% for Sunak. The remainder were undecided. Now, one of the biggest challenges facing the next PM is the economy. The Bank of England today warned that the UK is set to enter a recession following the highest interest rates in 27 years, and predictions of inflation surging beyond 13% in October. Sunak's stuttering campaign has rested on his ability to rebuild the economy, but given he's been Westminster's money man for the past two and a half years, these alarming developments aren't going to engender much confidence in him. Tonight, both candidates tackled the coming economic catastrophe on Sly News. What the Bank of England have said today is, of course, extremely worrying, but it is not inevitable. We can change the outcome and we can make it more likely that the economy grows. But now is the time to be bold, because if we don't act now, we are headed for very, very difficult times. Right, and I'm sure many of you saw what the Bank of England had to say today. And if we in the Conservative Party need to get real and fast because the lights on the economy are flashing red and the root cause is inflation. Now, I'm worried that Liz Truss's plans will make the situation worse. And what I want to do is different. I think the government's number one priority should be grappling with inflation. That's what I want to do. So who came out on top? Daily Telegraph columnist Madeline Grant and Emily Carver contributed to the Conservative Home. Both join me now. Emily, I guess this was very clear, wasn't it? This was the clear dividing line, the economy on a really disastrous day for the British economy. Who came out on top? It really was. You know, I wish that I could have been watching the Dan Wotton show instead because that really was <laughs> like watching, watching Pedro. You know, if I wasn't coming on to do my job on this channel, I would have had to have turned it off. I am oh, sorry for putting you through the pain, Emily, and I hope no one else bothered, let me tell you that. I think your ratings probably took a bounce, actually, rather than a hit uh, during that because it really was very dull because it was the same old, same old, and we've had this terrible news, predictions, models, whatever, from the Bank of England today, facing recession, potentially till the end of 2023, till the end of next year. It's not looking good. Yes, the big dividing line is between Rishi Sunak, who says we need to grapple with inflation before tax cuts come. Liz Truss is saying that we can uh, cut taxes now. 
and go for growth. Now, Rishi Sunak, I would take him more seriously if he actually had a plan for getting inflation down, because all he seems to be saying is that we can't cut taxes, but let's look at the Bank of England. He's hardly held them to account for keeping inflation low. So I'm not convinced by what his plan is of action. It just seems he wants to say no in order to present himself as the steady hand. Um, you know, he doesn't have a track record of success when it comes to the economy. Of course, he was the chancellor throughout the pandemic, which was a difficult job. Um, but it's that same old argument. Do we cut taxes now or not? Madeline Grant, did, did you see any sort of a plan from Sunak? Um, not really, but I wouldn't say that I had seen much of a plan um, from Liz Truss either. Um, I mean, as Emily said, when presented with um, the latest apocalyptic forecasting from the Bank of England, Liz Truss very much reverted to policy suggestions that we'd already heard, um, sound bites, you can't tax your way to prosperity, etc. But actually, a lot of the things that she's promising to do are simply continuations of current government policy. Um, I mean, it was an interesting debate. I mean, yes, perhaps at this stage it is getting a little bit stale, but the, the outcome was quite surprising. Um, I watched it and I would have said that Rishi performed marginally better, but actually the Sky audience gave him a really big margin there. And another interesting thing that I heard during the debate was the news that actually out of everyone in the audience who were predominantly, I think, exclusively Tory members, oh, only one person said that he had received his ballot papers so far. Um, and this is because there had been a, a some kind of security breach in CCHQ, I think. Um, and so um, we had kind of assumed that everyone had received their ballot papers, that this was something of a fait accompli. But actually, I think when you're dealing with a, a group of a, quite a small electorate of, um, you know, comparatively small electorate of 150,000 to 200,000 Tory members, actually a small swing can make quite a decisive difference. Um, and so I think that... It ain't over yet deal that people had expected. No, I mean, I took a look, by the way, uh, obviously I had one eye on the brilliant Mark Stein, one eye on uh, Kay Burley uh, during the eight o'clock hour. Weirdly, I'm, I'm with Emily. I, I thought it was the dullest thing I've ever seen. But the best moment, the best moment was actually this bust up that, that happened between the audience members. Watch. Uh, the press release didn't say that. It said that it would be, um, it, it, in order to reach the 8.8 .8 billion in savings, that it would be expanded out beyond civil service, uh, be, beyond the civil service itself. Um, so that's a mistake. Will you apologise? Because it was actually quite offensive. Oh, I hate this um, apologise. You know, for everything that you might have said. I just don't really don't understand it. The the opposition are always asking uh, other politicians to apologise for what they may or may not have done, uh, and it really doesn't sit well with me. When somebody's asking for your vote, you don't expect to be offended? Well, simple as that. What's that supposed to mean? But, you know, you well, I won't intrude on this. You know, if... We are going... Emily, I really enjoyed that, but I have to say, I'm with the bloke in the lovely cream blazer because... I hate this culture of say sorry, say sorry, say sorry. It doesn't achieve anything. Yeah, I think I'm with the older chap there too. Um, I think a lot of Conservative members are sick of the say sorry every time you actually say something you believe in. And I do think that this particular policy proposal, it's very frustrating that she didn't just 
stick by it because many economists have been talking about how pay should be decided more regionally depending on where mm. you live you know if you work at kpmg bristol you're unlikely to get paid as much as if you're pe- if you're working in kpmg canary yeah. wharf and it should be decided on a more regional basis, yeah. in my opinion. It was perhaps silly of her, foolish of her, perhaps to have uh, released such a controversial policy at that time when she was miles ahead in the polls. Um, but I would like to see our politicians stick to their word a little more. Be a because, little Madeline, it, it was very clear to me, uh, and I'm surprised, by the way, that they agreed to be interviewed by Burley. I- I'm going to put that out there. But it was very clear to me that Burley wanted to paint Truss as a flip-flopper. And she was even raising the fact that, you know, when she was a teenager, when she was a teenager, she had, a teenage Lib Dem, she had said she wanted to abolish the monarchy. I mean, is that fair for Burley to use things like that to paint Truss as a flip-flopper? I think that is a completely ridiculous example. It's totally ridiculous. The idea that, I mean, I think Liz Truss made this point very well, that if you haven't made some kind of political journey over the course of your life, it's people like Jeremy Corbyn who never make a political journey. They're exactly where they have been at the beginning of their life, and that's where they stay permanently stuck in the 1970s movement. Very true. Well, look, our Conservative leading ladies, brilliant as always. We will talk to you both next week. Thank you so much. Tomorrow's news tonight now in our media buzz. First front pages are just in. I've got them right here. And the big squeeze covers the Metro's front page, referring, of course, to the biggest loan rise since 95, as the Bank of England predicts a recession with interest rates, energy prices and inflation all going up. And it's fascinating when you think 95, isn't it? Two years before Tony Blair one in a landslide, maybe a bad omen for Liz Truss. The Daily Star tries to make light of today's gloomy economic outlook by reminding football fans that the Premier League returns uh, this week. I'm just going to read it, actually, because it's brilliant, this front page. We're going into recession for over a year. Inflation is heading up 15%. Our mortgages will soar as interest rates rise. The lights are going off. Our water is running out. And now we face war with China. And the good news... The Prem is back, and I think a lot of people will feel that very strongly. Uh, My political panel return now. The Conservative commentator Dominique Samuels, former Tory London mayoral candidate Sean Bailey, and political editor at the Sunday Mirror, Nigel Nelson. Breaking tonight, Tory leadership candidate Liz Truss has traded digs with Kay Burley after the frontrunner for PM exposed the Sly News Party girls' COVID lockdown hypocrisy stood um, shoulder to shoulder with a man who has betrayed the office of Prime Minister. I don't agree with that characterisation, Kay. You know, many mistakes were made during lockdown, Kay, Um, you know, by by many people. And I just think to sort of say that this was the, you know, crowning problem is, is not right. Yeah, some in charge of policy, some not. (laughs) Ah, <laughs> what a moment. Truss owned her. Go back a few weeks to the start of the leadership campaign and that attempted gotcha question probably would have thrown Truss, but her deft handling of the frosty situation proves not only that she's getting stronger and stronger, but demonstrates why a serious case of Truss derangement syndrome has begun sweeping the media and the political establishment. 
The Sunday Telegraph's editor, Alistair Heath, who coined the term, believes Truss is snaring detractors on the left and making a fatal miscalculation. He wrote in a column today, it was really brilliant actually, her critics cannot understand her appeal and are displaying all of the classic signs of a delusional ruling class that no longer likes or understands half their country. If and when she starts to score higher than Labour in the polls, this will be met by a total war and a hysterical, never-ending commitment to annihilate her. The truth will no longer matter. It will be a case of the ends justifying the means to stop trust at any cost. They will rue the day they so completely underestimated her. And I have predicted, actually, for some time that you wait till trust becomes prime minister the MSM, the establishment, the blob in this country are going to unite to try and bring her down because they are empowered after what happened to Boris Johnson. And as Truss's stock continues to rise, the Tory voters, Rishi's continues to plummet. The Foreign Secretary has opened up a 34-point lead over her rival and sources close to the Sunak camp reportedly fear the Boris betrayer narrative is destroying his chances of becoming PM. A YouGov survey of Conservative members for The Times found that more than half believe ministers and MPs like Fishy Rishi were wrong to ask the Prime Minister. It found 53% disagreed with the mass rebellion that effectively forced him to resign, whilst only 41% thought it was the right move. You know, <laughs> this is also no surprise for me. I've been saying exactly that since day one. Media and establishment might love Sunak for the way he ousted Boris, but ordinary folk now view him as a disloyal snake, slick with his sound bites, but not to be trusted. So has Vichy Rishi's reputation as a Boris backstabber ruined his chances of becoming Prime Minister, Dominique Samuels? I think they've certainly hampered them, most definitely, because he is viewed as someone that can't be trusted, unfortunately. You know, but then again, he's not the first Chancellor or the first Cabinet Minister um, to stab another politician in the back. Yeah, that didn't work for Heseltine, did it? It didn't, but... I I'm going to be generous to Rishi. I actually like Rishi Sunak, if I'm being honest. I agree more so with Liz Truss's policies, but in terms of the way Rishi Sunak delivers the things that he believes in, um, I think he's much more effective, and I think he's much more likeable as well, if I'm being honest. And that's why... Maybe with the wider electorate, when, when it comes to polling, yeah, he would be more likely to win an election, according to polling, than Liz Truss. And also, again, trying to insert some... Um, generosity to Rishi here. There are some polls that do shrink Liz Truss's lead mm. to about 5%, and he is more favoured amongst Conservative Yeah, and the ballots are not out. We know so, the ballots are not out yet, and, so this so race yeah, ain't uh, over. So, yeah, his establishment... I don't agree with a lot of, of his policies. I think Liz Truss's are more favourable, but I think he's a, a far better politician. And I think that part of why he's getting so much hate from maybe fellow MPs, I think it's a bit of jealousy, personally. Sean Bailey, I... I was really taken with Alistair Heath's column today because I do think trust arrangement syndrome is going to overtake this country because what's so fascinating is the elite and the establishment really thought that Sunak was going to win. They just couldn't believe the Conservative Party was going to go for trust. Whereas, of course, I knew from the start there was no way the party members were ever going to go for Sunak. But the establishment are freaking out now and they want to bring trust down. And I love this term, trust arrangement syndrome, because I see it all the time. 
There'll certainly be trust arrangement. What happened to Boris? What they did to Boris was a very deliberate campaign led by a number of people, and they'll think they can repeat mm. that. But they should take into account what happened in Brexit. They went after the public, told people who, who voted for Brexit they were either dumb, racist yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or emotional, and what happened? Yeah. We left. And I think what you'll see here is Rishi is definitely competent. We all know that. And, and for some people, he's very, very likeable. But his real problem is twofold. One, there's a certain branch of Conservatives, maybe a small number, but a, but a significant number, who think the man's a snake because of what happened to Boris. I mean, you only have to look at the number of, of, of Conservative members who still want Boris, and they directly hold Rishi responsible. So no amount of debate is going to change who they'll vote for. No, that's true. And the other part is as well, when you, look at, when you look at Liz, she is holding her own in, in this environment, but this is not her environment. In every other political environment, she will absolutely shine. And she's demonstrated that as, as what she did at the Foreign Office and all the rest of that. But what's important about the derangement piece is we know it's going to happen because they've done it to other Tory yeah. ministers. You know, how does she treat The term derangement the syndrome, though, that comes from Trump. Trump. Mm -hmm. Is Liz Truss really an, any comparison to Donald Trump? No, I don't, I don't think ideas. she is in terms of what sort of politician she is, but I would diagnose someone like Nigel Nelson, <laughs> you know, a, a, a top member of the Westminster pack. I would diagnose you, Nigel Nelson, with trust arrangement syndrome. You're going to try and bring this woman down the moment she's PM, aren't you? Uh, what I will be trying to do, along with the newspaper, is to get a Labour government into power, which is not quite yeah. the same thing. At least you're honest. Um, yeah. I think whoever, whoever wins this, it's go they'll have a honeymoon period and look like yeah. a new government. Yeah. Same trick but, uh, performed by John Major and Michael, mm. and Michael Heseltine. Did you understand what Alistair Heath was saying, though, about trust arrangement syndrome today? Well, I'm not sure I do, actually. I mean, I, I think um, the, the, the argument will focus back onto the economy. Liz Truss has been hugely reckless with it as far as her, her um, tax cuts go. Then we have Rishi Sunak, because he's panicking, going down the road and saying, oh, let's have sort of um, a, a 4p off income tax by the end of the next parliament. And if his chance had been blown by anything, it's not so much stabbing Boris in the back, it was by the Bank of England governor yeah. today saying we're in for a recession, which means he won't be able to pay for those tax cuts with growth. Good point. Uh, Burley did actually go for Sunak too. Let's look. Penny Mordaunt uh, has backed uh, Ms Truss. Ben Wallace has backed Ms Truss. Nadim Zahawi has backed Ms Truss. Tom Tugendhat has backed uh, Liz Truss. Sajid Javid, your old boss, has backed Ms Truss. Why are so many people supporting her rather than you? Right, but, but Kay, it goes back to the question right at the beginning. Every stage of the parliamentary process, I had the broadest yeah, and but biggest these number are the of support. That have worked most closely with you. Final thought: When you go, you know, when you look at yourself in the mirror at night, just before you go to bed, and you think, all these people that have sat around the cabinet table with me, and now they don't want to work with me, they think that the other candidate's better. Uh, but plenty of people sat around the cabinet table also support me, mm. right? Dominic Robb, the deputy prime minister, is out there right now talking about it, and lots of others. But I also, as I said, now Actually, answer to the question. Him. Actually, right. just him. Right. I, think, I think we only just <laughs> have one person. Well, right. oh, I actually felt sorry for him there, Sean. I did. I look, I'm sorry. Look, as someone who's been through the process, I, I can tell you it's pretty brutal. But I think Rishi's real problem now is that the bulk of Conservative members believe that Liz 
can beat yeah, Keir Starmer. And you know what politicians are like because you are one. You think yeah, about your own yeah, career. Uh, yeah, and you it, think and about it, your own career. But you back Truss before back it was trust popular to back Truss. I just, I just worry that Liz Truss is going to be another Boris, which I think is why the membership backs her. But she's going to be another Boris in terms of promising loads of things. Dominic, what about a beautiful and then not delivering what about them? A I'm sorry, it sounds not going to be true. Of, no, of the Boris, uh, good parts, and then the the Iron Lady yeah, mixed in there. She's Boris not Margaret was, Thatcher. Boris, and hold on, hold on. We don't know yet. Hold on, hold on. Don't know things yet. that are not going to happen. The whole point, I'm the whole sorry. point is the party <laughs> hopes she's another Boris because he delivered an yeah, 80 seat indeed. majority. Indeed. Majority, and then not much else. He didn't do yeah, because anything. Because he's been with interfered with by the likes of Nigel. Oh, by the Tory I'm sorry, I'm going to have to say all this victimising Boris like he was some angel that delivered all this stuff and he was burned at the stake of the media. He handed the media opportunities on a plate. Say tonight, uh, there were mistakes made. There were mistakes. And the levelling up that. thing never happened. Broke various promises in the manifesto. The green agenda craziness. Mm. And Liz Truss has actually said she's going to exactly. roll so back a bit on that. It's the best parts of Boris with, with a bit of iron. But again, I worry that we everything hope. sounds good right now. But no, when we she hope. actually gets into office, it's we a hope. story. We but hope. whatever. Be any different under now look, I'm going to give you a glimpse now into what the world's dystopian future might look like. The promo video for a new mirrored city in the Saudi Arabian desert has been released. And though it looks like the opening sequence of a terrible sci-fi movie, is actually really disturbingly real. Watch. Imagine a traditional city and consolidating its footprint, designing to protect and enhance nature. The line will be home to 9 million residents and will be built with a footprint of just 34 square kilometers. And we are designing it to provide a healthier, more sustainable quality of life. It's 500 meters tall, 200 meters wide, 170 kilometers long. The Line, the city that delivers new wonders for the world. And I have to say, this is a grotesque half a trillion brainchild of Mohammed bin Salman, which has been slammed as totally unworkable and rightly faced widespread criticism. Naturally, the crown prince of the world's biggest crude oil exporter declared without irony that his dystopian city will be carbon neutral and, quote, provide an answer to the world's environmental problems. The autocratic Arab also claimed Neom is a place for those who dream of a better tomorrow. Maybe focus on giving your best people a better today as well. Welcome back. No Prime Minister's wife has ever wielded as much influence in number 10 as Carrie Johnson. She was often the talk of Westminster, though not always for the right reasons. Some of her harshest critics even claim she helped blow it all for Boris. Uh, she was blamed for her husband's misjudged march to net zero, derided for the pricey Downing Street flat redecoration and deemed responsible for the cake that egregiously ended, or helped end anyway, Boris's premiership. But as Star Daily Telegraph columnist Celia Walden notes, Carrie still held in high regard in political circles, and some believe freedom from number 10 could help Britain's outgoing First Lady find her own voice. And I'm delighted to say that Celia joins me now. So is that possible, Celia? I mean, could we be talking about our very own Hillary Clinton here? I think that might be pushing it a little far. I think before <laughs> she gets she is obviously, as you say, a sort of political animal, isn't she? Um, and But I think that before she does anything 
in that in that in that area she's going to have to do a bit of sort of brand rehab basically because um rightly or wrongly she has taken on some of boris's sort of toxicity indeed indeed so how does she do that well, it's a bit tricky, isn't it? Because as you and I know, um, the first thing that any kind of uh, sort of uh, 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 troubleshooter PR would do is say, step away or distance yourself from the from the toxic thing. Uh, but when that's your husband, it's a little bit tricky. Um, so she is going to have to. I mean, I think I think you know she's involved at the moment with the Aspinall Foundation, um, and uh, it's kind of well documented that she she is very um, into animal welfare. In fact, that's got her into a spot of trouble, hasn't it? Um, but I think so. I think it, to, to do a bit more with that. Uh, and work in communications um, uh, with the Aspinall Foundation or, or even set up her own foundation, that would sort of be a good stopgap. And then after that, perhaps she could sort of reignite, um, you know, potentially a political career. The thing that's really interesting that you point out is, of course, it's a really difficult place to be right now because Carrie, who is a political animal, feels incredibly betrayed by the folk who turned on Boris and essentially booted her out of number 11. And uh, you say that according to one MP's wife, uh, the key is not to carry revenge in your heart because that just eats away at you. There are no friends in politics. It's a brutal business and loyalty is always fluid. So you think it's important for Carrie to effectively forgive the folk who have just stabbed her husband either in the front or in many cases <laughs> the back. Every area. Well, I think I, I do think that the thing about Carrie, you have to remember, is that it, she's young. She's 34, um, and so it's all very well to be. She can know as much as she likes about the theory of, of PR, and of course she was. You know, she's been in communications for for years. Um, so I was always astonished when she made it sort of PR mishaps because you thought, you, you, who knows better than you do, um, not to do that sort of thing. Anyway, you know, I'm talking about the wallpaper or the that you would think that she would know not to do that. But um, but equally, I think that she, she she's always been in charge of Boris, hasn't she? And she's very she's very good at doing that. Apparently, she used to take charge of his weight, for example, and she was she was aware of perception in a way that he is not um, and never has been. So um, so I, I, I definitely got the feeling, um, I mean, what, I think everyone got the feeling that she was sort of managing him in a way. And he needs, as we know, he needs a handholder, you know, before he had Cummings and then who would obviously deal with everything and probably cut his food up into little bite-sized slices. Or And um, and I think he is, he is someone who needs that. Um, so in a way, being liberated from number 10 and 11 might, might sort of free her up. Do you worry at all, and I mean, I know we don't know the ins and outs of their relationship, but I, I just wonder if once he's out of Downing Street, Boris might start to blame Carrie a little bit, because there are folk who are very close to Boris and really supported Boris, who always said, oh, my goodness, we need to get Carrie out of his ear, because it's Carrie who is advising him things that are causing mistakes. Do you think he could feel resentful for that, or will it actually strengthen their relationship not having to deal with that day-to-day -day political pressure? Well, I think it, being an outgoing prime minister is is a tricky thing. I think it's a bit like being a sort of a, a former sportsman, isn't it? In that you're so used, particularly someone like Boris, who, as we know, relishes sort of the, the public 
uh, you know, his public um, position, and he 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 really drinks all that in. So when it suddenly goes, I suspect it's a it's a tough thing, and it will be tough for her uh, to deal with. Um, but I think it's true that she needs to. Uh, develop a thick skin in terms of the, um, as you said, the sort of backstabbing and the frontstabbing. In that, that uh, she, she, that that sort of thing is just going to happen in any form of the political world, mm. and only having a tough skin. I mean, in Boris's case, he just doesn't seem to take no. any of it in, which is oddly helpful. No, do you know what? And I think it's going to be very different to, for example, when David Cameron uh, left number 10, because that was disastrous for him. He had a really bad couple of years. Sam Cam struggled to cope with him. The relationship was difficult for a while. And that was understandable because he knew his political career was over. He had made this massive misjudgment with Brexit, right? And he was never returning to frontline politics. There's a very different thing going on here with Boris, because you speak to folk who are close to Boris, his key allies now, and they're already planning his comeback, Celia. There is going to be some sort of second act for Boris Johnson's political career. So I guess they have a focus, don't they? There is something to work towards. There is. And I think in many ways she's the consummate sort of first lady in that it, with someone like Michelle Obama or or, or even, I mean, I think Michelle Obama didn't, didn't really, she said afterwards she didn't really enjoy it, did she? She wanted to, yeah. she wanted to do yeah. her own yeah, thing. Yeah, because everyone she... wanted her to run for president. I, I'm not quite sure there's the same feeling with Carrie and the Tory party. But but I think you, there is a feeling that Carrie's enjoyed it and that she yeah. she is, is definitely a kind of a pusher um, and would be keen, I think, presumably be keen for him to get back um, in power. Yeah, exactly. Whereas uh, Michelle was the absolute opposite, wasn't she? Drag you out of there and never go back onto the front line. And Samantha Cameron, I think, obviously yeah. just didn't enjoy it at all. Um, and you can understand them. It was what's that famous Pat Nixon phrase who said it was the, she said it was the hardest unpaid job in the world, which, which yeah. is true because you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You're never really going to win, are you? Well, no. And look, one thing's for certain. They're going to be living a much nicer life, Celia, because the moolah, the big bucks, the offers are rolling in. You say that I had an interesting chat with a, with a, yeah. a friend in LA who works in, in precisely sort of this area. Um, and he said uh, that from what he's understood, that the appetite for Boris is not there in the same way really? as it was. Well, this is what I'm hearing. Not in the same way as it was, for example, for Blair. Interesting. So, I'm sure there will still be, obviously, a lot of moolah rolling in, but uh, <laughs> but perhaps not as much. As maybe as maybe not the levels of Blair. Maybe not the levels of Blair, but I still reckon they'll do okay. Fascinating analysis, Celia Walden. Let's return to tomorrow's news tonight now in our media buzz. More front pages have just been delivered. The big squeeze is the eyes headline as it reports that a UK recession will start this winter and last until 2024. It's expected to be the biggest downturn since the 2008 crash. And really disturbing uh, graph there showing the change in interest rates. Time to batten down the houses, says the Express, in reference to the looming 15-month recession. This is after Bank of England boss Andrew Bailey raised interest rates to 1.75%, and some experts forecast that they might soar to 3% this year.
as well as those rising interest rates. The Guardian report on the Met Police officially probing former BBC DJ Tim Westwood over sex offence allegations, which he denies. Plus, it claims to have uncovered 12 extreme weather events that would have been impossible without human-driven global warming. On the front page of the Daily Telegraph, the incoming recession is to cause a record drop in income as families are warned of a very big shock to finances. Plus, Thames Water faces penalties over a cover-up at a key water plant that was meant to be designed to protect households from drought but was out of action the day after temperatures hit a record 40 degrees. The Daily Mail takes aim at the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey after today's record rate rise and recession warnings. Bailey was forced to deny he was, quote, asleep at the wheel after inflation hit seven times his own official targets. The Daily Mirror now missing in action is the headline as it attacks PM Johnson and Chancellor Nadeem Zahawi for taking a summer break with a recession looming. More on the media buzz now with tonight's superstar panel. Political commentator Dominique Samuels, conservative politician Sean Bailey and political editor at the Sunday Mirror, Nigel Nelson. The family of Archie Battersby have vowed to fight to the end after filing a last-minute bid to have him moved to a hospice so he can die with dignity. 12-year-old Archie has been in a coma since April after his mother found him unconscious in their home. Upon being discovered, Archie had a cord wrapped around his neck. His mother believes he was trying the so-called blackout challenge, a disturbing dare on the revolting Chinese social media app TikTok, where users are encouraged to choke themselves to the point of losing consciousness. At least seven children in Italy, Australia and the US have been attributed, or deaths have been attributed to that challenge. TikTok has claimed it was never a trend and insisted it, quote, removes any content that promotes dangerous behaviour that could cause harm. On June the 13th, the High Court judge ruled Archie was brainstem dead based on MRI scan results and that he should be taken off life support. Since then, his brave parents, Holly Dance and Phil Battersby, have been fighting against the ruling, and yesterday they lost an appeal with the European Court of Human Rights, who said, quote, it would not interfere with the decisions of UK courts. This is how Holly reacted. Um, absolutely deflated, just so let down. Um, yeah, obviously that was our last option. You know, I wish I could take you all in there to see... Like for yourself. It's just unfair. The fact is, a parent, we've got no rights with our children. It's disgusting. Archie's life support was scheduled to end at 11am this morning. However, this was delayed after his family launched a high court bid to move him to a hospice. Now, we'll come on to TikTok in just a moment. But, Dominique, it's hard not to feel sympathy here with Archie's family. Yeah, I think it's extremely difficult, especially when, you know, you hear about a mother's intuition and she genuinely feels as though Archie should be given a chance at life, yet it's the state that's telling a mother that her son, her 12-year-old son, can no longer live. And there's just something about that that doesn't sit right with me, especially when, according to her, um, a number of countries have offered to give Archie treatment, mm. Italy, Turkey, Japan... If other countries are willing to give him that treatment, I don't see why that's an option that can't be explored. Sean Bailey, where do you stand? 
I mean, I have a 12-year-old at home as well, a 12-year-old boy as well, and it just it breaks my heart to see this situation, and I think the family's response is what any family would, would, would try to do. The challenge here has to be... What, what, what's been working my mind is we have lots of elderly people who have absolutely no quality of life that we keep alive for years and years and years, but here we have a 12-year-old and, and we're rushing to this decision. Mm. So I think, as a country, we need to have a debate about whose life you preserve, when and how. Because, of course, on the other side of it, doctors have to look at what they think is real and what they want to do to the resources they have. Because there's other sick children, they may want to direct those resources too. So it's a very challenging situation. But as far as the family's concerned, I can understand understand their pain and I can see why they've pursued it to the end and they should see, continue to pursue that. I mean, Nigel Russell, it doesn't feel like a big ask to allow Archie to die in a hospice, which is what no. the family are now asking. And I think that, uh, obviously, all of us have huge sympathy with the family and that this whole case is absolutely heartbreaking for them. All I would say is, in situations like this, I do think you need... Um, a dispassionate decision made, which is why only judges, as far as I can see, can be in that position to make such a decision. And awful though it is for the family, it does seem to me that judges who are acting in the best interests of a child are probably best placed to make this final decision. And that's, that's the sadness of it. It is final. Dominique, I want to talk to you about these trends that are developing on TikTok because it's incredibly disgusting to me that we are allowing this Chinese communist app to play such a big part in our life now. The UK Parliament was highly criticised this week uh, for joining TikTok and swiftly came off the platform. <laughs> and I believe you have made a moral decision to stay off TikTok. Yeah, um, I don't use TikTok. I don't use it to post. Um, I think it's a scourge on the younger generation. Um, and I think that it's responsible for a poisoning of the younger generation, the things that you can find on there. There's even... Now, they now have shops now on TikTok. And on that shop, um, children, doesn't matter what age they are, can buy balloon canisters, you know, mm. the balloons that yeah, people yeah, yeah. use that in many cases have left people mm. paralysed. That's the kind of platform TikTok is. And it was mentioned in the leadership debates, actually, Liz Truss hinted um, that she would actually do something about TikTok and seek to restrict it. And I'm sorry, I agree with it. I, I don't think it's right. Sean Bailey, I mean, on Nigel Farage's GB News show last night, uh, in an exclusive investigation, he revealed that people smugglers are using TikTok to boast about the journeys that they allow people to make across the channel while advertising their services and providing phone numbers that folk can call. And for me, look, I, I know there's a big issue with social media. There's a big debate over the online safety bill, which I think goes far too far in terms of risks to free speech. But as a dad, you must be incredibly worried about trends like this on TikTok because this cord one isn't the only one. There's loads of these bizarre totally effed up 
challenges which could cause serious harm to young people if they try them. I mean, look, social media is a force for good and a force for deep, deep evil. Mm. There's many of these bizarre challenges across all the platforms. I think where TikTok is the worst, the number of those challenges and how they're regulated. And when we're talking about what we're going to do about TikTok, we should ask ourselves this. If TikTok was British or American, would the Chinese government allow it to be well, of course used in China? And I think we should now think about the kind of response yeah. they would have, because a a site that doesn't respond to these challenges with laser-like accuracy and lightning speed mm. is a real risk to our children. And TikTok is a risk, isn't it, anyway, to our, to our country, Nigel, because we have all of these young people getting addicted to an app which is run by the Chinese Communist government, giving huge amounts of personal data. And we know now that these apps can actually learn so much about you. And are we really meant to trust the Chinese regime that they use it responsibly? Of course we're not. Well, I mean, TikTok argue that the, that the Chinese government doesn't have any part to play. But, of course, we do know that they are behind it. Uh, and it's probably significant that Parliament, which was going to have a TikTok account, has just abandoned the idea that they decided yeah. not to do it. The problem is politicians are going to find it irresistible, aren't they? Because they need young folk, and, and if you want to get to young folk, you've got to be on TikTok. Well, I mean, I think that, that um, politicians who are sanctioned by China, and bear in mind an awful lot of MPs are now, don't find it irresistible at all. No. And they certainly led the charge to actually to try and get rid of it. I think the issue, probably with all social media, is we have to change the, the way that we police it. At the moment, the situation seems to be that, provided that the, the platform doesn't look for the content, they're not responsible for it. Yeah. Once they start looking for it, they are. We've got to make sure they look, at, they look for it and get rid of it. Mm, yeah. Indeed. Now, it may surprise you to learn I'm not much of an adrenaline junkie, and this next segment certainly ain't going to change that. This is the terrifying moment. The paraplegic Swiss adrenaline junkie Kevin Phillip narrowly avoided falling to his death while paragliding in Spain. The professional daredevil was thousands of feet in the air when he was hit by a gust of turbulence, which caused his parachute to completely tangle and left him free-falling through the sky. Finally, as you just saw, Kevin was able to release his safety chute just before impact and landed unbelievably without serious injuries. By the way, after an, <coughs> an ordeal like that, you'd, you'd think you'd never want to parachute again, right? But no! Kevin, he's now back up in the sky doing what he loves, uh, believe me. Sitting on the sofa opposite my superstar panel, that's enough to get my heart rate <laughs> spiking sometimes. I don't need any paragliding, <laughs> Dominic Samuel, Sean, Nigel Nelson. Uh, but do stand by, because coming up is potentially sparking World War III. <laughs> Good enough reason to be crowned uh, Union Jack. As there's some stiff competition tonight, though the final GB UJ of the week announced imminently. But first, she pandered to woke zealots by removing a so-called ableist slur from her new album. But now Beyonce has paved the way for policing of our language so extreme, we might soon be cancelled for calling people idiots. Rapper, podcaster, social media sensation Zuby uncancelled on this in just a few seconds. First, though, here's what's coming up on Monday's show. 
Coming up on Dan Wooten tonight, as Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak continue touring the nation on the hunt for conservative votes, I get to the heart of the battle to BPM with a special report from the latest leadership hustings in Eastbourne. Plus, as former candidate Suala Braverman enrages the left by scrapping diversity lessons in Whitehall, Dr. Tony Sewell, the man responsible for the report officially exonerating Britain of systemic racism, hits back at critics who refuse to admit just how tolerant we all all are. And as ever, there's unmissable opinion from a state of fair author Laura Dodsworth and my superstar panel, Daily Express columnist Carol Malone, left-wing commentator Sam Dowler, and esteemed political journalist John Sargent. That's Dan Wilson tonight, Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. But it's time now for Uncancelled. And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. Being a millennial icon hasn't excused Beyonce from controversy. The music superstar came under fire from disability campaigners after including a so-called ableist slur. This was a new one to me, ableist slur, uh, which be warned, I am about to play uncensored on her new album, Renaissance. Listen. Now, in addition to the offensive connotations, the term is also widely used as slang for going crazy. Uh, regardless, Beyonce swiftly pledged to change the lyrics of the song, which appeared on a track appropriately called Heated. Pretty ironic, really, given how other hip-hop stars use derogatory terms, including racial slurs and sexually provocative content on tracks all the time. I mean, 12 of the 16 songs on Renaissance are labelled explicit, but you don't hear anyone complaining about them. Instead, as exposed by my next guest, liberal extremists are drawing up a hit list of self-defined problematic terms and wait for it, they include idiot, lame and dumb. And they want those words cut from our daily lives, despite the vast majority considering them completely harmless. So by appeasing the woke mob, has Beyonce just emboldened the chronically offended to police our language to a terrifying extent. Rapper, author and social media star Zuby joins me now. Zuby, she gave in so quickly and I guess the fear is what does this mean about lots of other words that we use all the time and are now considered an ableist slur, whatever that means. I don't know if you can explain it to me, but go on. <laughs> Yeah, Dan, we're living in very strange times. I'm sure many people watching this have had heard, um, have read the book 1984 and are probably sick of people referencing it over the past few years. But this is quite literally what is happening. This is an assault on the English language, a narrowing of the language so that people are no longer able to express and communicate simple concepts because somewhere out there, there could be somebody who may be is offended or more likely pretends to be offended on somebody else's behalf. And that is certainly what seems to be going on here. I mean, if people are going to talk about offensive language in music in general and hip hop and rap and R&B music in particular, perhaps, then um, there are many, many more words that we should get to uh, before this one. That's what I couldn't believe because it's like, by the way, I don't want to censor hip hop. I don't want to censor rap. I'm not offended by it at all. But 
Why did Beyonce so quickly bow to the mob over this one word? I mean, literally, it's a big deal, Zuby. You know, you know, you're a rapper. It's a big deal for an artist to actually re-record a lyric and re-release it. Uh, and she did that within about 24 hours. Yeah, what's really interesting is the exact same thing happened with Lizzo just last month, just a few weeks ago, the exact same word, which is spaz, which means going crazy. It's slang for wilding out, going crazy, that kind of thing. It's been used my, my entire life. I've never, I've actually never heard anyone take any kind of offense to it at all. And I think in many of these cases, it's just a handful of people who want to make noise and want to draw attention to themselves and use this as a weapon to go after people, even if it's celebrities. And I think every time someone caves to the mob, number one, they are admitting that they did something wrong. I mean, there's nothing. She, did, yeah. she didn't say a slur. She wasn't attacking anybody. Um, even if she were, <laughs> that's actually still allowed, but that's not what the case was. Um, but every time this happens, it emboldens them. So next up, there'll be, you know, someone will say, oh, that's, that was dumb. Oh, that person, I think that person's being a bit of an idiot. And boom, next thing you know, they're getting canceled for saying the word dumb. They'll say, oh, that's, you know, that some people can't speak. That's offensive to people who can't speak and so on and so forth, right? And it never, it never ends until there are no more words left to describe anything. Well, indeed. Because we were speaking about this earlier in the office, Ubi, and crazy in love you know arguably one of beyonce's <laughs> biggest hits what is she gonna have to rename that because you can see that the word crazy has other connotations too and that's the problem where do you end if you go down this path yeah exactly i mean and the word love maybe someone is offended by the word love maybe there's <laughs> oh, someone out there who's recently heartbroken or someone who's uh, gone through a tough time and the word love upsets them and triggers them so uh, there, there's no end to so this. Do you think Beyonce should have stood firm and just said, I'm an artist, uh, this is a word, it's got an explicit warning, you might be offended, but I'm not changing, I'm not changing it. You think she should have stood firm? I think she should not have even responded. If she was going to respond, I think she should have said, no, I'm not changing it. Um, but I think she could have simply ignored it and the mob would have faded away within 48 hours, because I don't believe anyone was genuinely offended. No, I agree. And you know what happens now, Zuby? Every record company, every manager, every recording artist around the world now puts that word in the little don't use pile, and we don't need that. Yeah, what was interesting about that clip you played is that there was another word repeated multiple times that's, uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a grotesque it's not a grotesque slur or extremely profane, but it's a, it's a little bit more profane than the word that she got, a, <laughs> than the word that she uh, had to change. So yeah. there, there's no limiting I know, principle uh, here. I, as no I say, I just think the irony when uh, in these rap tunes, you know, the N-word is spouted on a sort of every second line basis. I, I was quite surprised. I was quite surprised by Beyonce, to be honest. Uh, and I think you're right. I think she should have held firm. But thank you. That was the author, rapper and social media star, Zuby. But it's time now to reveal today's greatest Britain and Union jackass. My superstar panel return now. Dominique Samuels, who is your nomination for greatest Britain? Uh, mine is Suella Braverman for standing up to woke diversity training um, in government 
institutions. Completely ridiculous. Yes, we spoke about us at the top of the show, big time. Sean Bailey, your nomination for greatest. Our greatest Britain is Cara Bell, the young woman yeah. who stood up to children being given puberty-blocking drugs who have gender dysmorphia. Her campaign is based on a horrible treatment at the hands of the Tavistock Clinic. Yeah, and I had her on the show earlier this week, and I find her such an inspiring young woman and so brave to have spoken out, and she's made real change. Yeah. Nigel Nelson, your nominee. And mine's Rebecca Vardy. Uh, <laughs> you, you may have been a jackass for uh, getting involved in a court case with Colleen Rooney, but she's a great Brit for all the entertainment value she's given us. <laughs> Uh, all good nominations, really hard to choose, actually, but I am going to go for Suella Braverman because I think what she's trying to do in government is incredibly important. So well done, Dominique Samuels, for that. Union jackass time now. Dominique, who are you going for? Mine is <laughs> former Health Secretary Sajid Javid for being a slippery career politician <coughs> who's even more of a snake than Rishi. I think he's the real snake, actually. The thing is, I have found it completely cringeworthy, all of these politicians who had absolutely no intention of supporting Liz Truss, thinking, oh, I want my chance to get back into the Cabinet. And for <laughs> Javid, it's like, oh, my goodness, you coordinated, even though they denied it, you coordinated your resignation with Sunak within six minutes of each other. And I have to say, it does make me feel that politics is a very dirty business, and I'm glad to not oh, be a part of it. But ask me, I could no have told you that. <laughs> yes. Friendship means nothing. Uh, Sean Bailey, your Union Jackass nominee. My honorary Union Jackass is the New York Times. Since the Brexit vote, they've issued article after article suggesting that um, Britain's in terminal terminal decline and that we're some kind of hellhole. I think they should use their time to focus on the absolute mess that America's in. Mm. It'll serve America yeah. much better. Focus on Sleepy Joe. Exactly. <laughs> What's this about, Nigel Nelson? The way, you know, you're obviously one of our most respected journalists here in the UK. What's this about, the New York Times painting a consistently false picture around Britain? Because I have to say, I think Sean's completely right, and this is infuriating me more and more with every feature, because you read it and it's like, this ain't the country I'm living in. No, well, I, I mean, I think that New York Times has always been a bit like that. Uh, it once said that um, the state used to deliver milk to our doorsteps, mm. when, of course, that, uh, that, that it didn't. Of course, none of us get milk to our doorsteps now anyway, but New York Times always been like that. Mm. Mm, I don't understand it, Dominique. I don't understand it. Uh, uh, Nigel Nelson, who's your nominee? <laughs> yeah, but I've got an honorary jackass too, and it's Nancy, uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, for going to Taiwan when she didn't need to. Of course, we should all be supporting Taiwan's ind independence, uh, but this was just unnecessarily provocative. Uh, Dominique and Sean, this issue has really divided the right. Where, where do you both stand? I think, for me, we need to show that we support Taiwan, but let's not agitate the situation. But with a strident, with a strident China, if they think for a second that we're going to buckle, we're in the trouble, but we mustn't act as the aggressors. Shouldn't be doing it. I Dominique? think what made it worse is that Nancy Pelosi, she more than not represents um, government 
policy, really, and government policy towards um, Taiwan. She's one of the most important people um, in Washington. So for her to actually do that and make a big show of it, it inflames tensions when yeah. I think it's really unneeded. Well, Megan Kelly said Biden last night it was all attention-seeking because she was just on a big farewell tour. So it was all about me, 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 Pelosi, as ever. But I have to say, this one is so clear for me. Sean Bailey, The New York Times. What are they doing with their purposeful mischaracterization of this brilliant country? I'm sick of it. Jealousy. Sean Bailey, They're Dominique Samuels. Yeah, good point. Sean Bailey, Dominique Samuels, Nigel Nelson. Thank you so much. Fabulous panel. I'm back Monday at 9. Good night. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooden tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.